situation we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think... Hello, and welcome back to another edition of Behind the Headlines. Today is Sunday, October 23rd, and with me in our studio today from across the pond, we have Mr. Joe Quinn. Hello. Neil Bradley. Hi, everyone. And sitting next to me is Harrison Coley. Hi, everyone. SOT editors all. Well, we've had a very interesting week in the news uh, starting off, I think, with uh, the third of three debates between presidential hopefuls Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Uh, so we're going to get into that a little bit today. A lot of information has continued to pour out regarding uh, Hillary's campaign and all the multiple ugly, dirty tricks that her campaign has been up to in order to undercut the uh, Trump's campaign. We'll also get a little into the, uh, the fight in Mosul in Iraq, as well as some other big stories in the news. So maybe we can just start off with the, uh, the election. Uh, thankfully, there are only a couple more weeks to go before this, uh, this stage of the mess is uh, over with. Uh, and the next one begins. <laughs> and the next one begins, exactly. So, well... Well, maybe we should begin with um, the information regarding uh, the Project Veritas action uh, and and yeah, all of let's the do that. yeah. Did you want to yeah. kick us off there, Neil? Uh, this is a couple of videos released now by this guy James O'Keefe, part of Project Veritas. Loosely tied and or funded, I'm not sure, by Breitbart.com. So you know where they're coming from, conservative side. Um, but uh, it's pretty daring stuff. Mm-hmm. And they've released two 15-minute videos. The first, just an idea now, on, on YouTube. But the first video has been seen five million times in six days. Part two, less less of a hit, 3.5 million views. The basic revelation is that those Trump rallies going back a year, so when he was running as first in the primaries and then when he was Republican candidate, all the violence and the trouble and the fights and uh, in some cases his rallies were cancelled either because of a fear of violence or something actually kicked off. The these videos have party organizers and subcontractors indirectly working for the Clinton campaign, admitting on tape that they're going around getting people to start fights. Now, it's not the first time we heard that. I heard that at the time. Fights at Trump rallies. At Trump rallies. And they themselves explain why that's great, because the media will cover 
no matter what, and they'll cover it as they want it to be covered, which is what people see. It's trouble starting at Trump rallies. And the message then relayed to everyone is, via the mainstream media, is violence follows Trump everywhere. Ergo, he's a violent person and or a fascist and or a new Hitler and so on. So um, it's pretty damning. And that's probably why it's been seen so many times and why the mainstream media has actually had to report on it. Not much, though. Not much. Um, Clinton was asked on her plane about it by one of the embedded reporters traveling with her on a campaign, and she just dismissed it as, oh, it's just another one of Donald Trump's conspiracy theories. I can't answer all of them. Mm. But something tells me that's not going to be enough. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I don't think it's possible this was not, it's it's a kind of two for one scenario going on here with these, uh, with this situation where um, Clinton's people were basically busting, like Neil said, were busting people in, to, you know, to be violent at Trump rallies. And then, uh, yeah, that looks bad. But this was going on a long time ago, and it ties into some other uh, leaked emails uh, that have come out um, in terms of, uh, I mean, the phrase that they used was the Pied Piper phrase, uh, which was the idea of the Clinton camp in league, really, with, with the media deliberately uh, pushing Trump to the front uh, uh, as a contender, as the as the most likely or most liable, most most uh, plausible um, opponent for her. Uh, so it gets quite uh, it gets quite complex in the in, in the thinking behind it, although it's and uh, quite devious, although it's you know makes it's it's a good idea if if, if that's the one you've hit on and that, that's a good way to go about it. You basically. Between Ted Cruz and the other kind of also runs, the Clinton campaign decided, yeah, let's go for Trump because he's a big buffoon and he'll be easily taken down. Uh, uh, compared to me, wonderful, adorable uh, Hillary, uh, it'll be uh, it'll be no contest. Uh, so we can virtually assure that Hillary will win by. Uh, by pushing Trump to the front, and the way that they pushed Trump to the front was to have Hillary, because obviously all the spotlights uh, between on, on either side in terms of any anybody who's either running in the primaries or um, uh, or, or afterwards after the nomination, the spotlight is always on on Hillary more than anybody else because she was a former Secretary of State. She's the most high profile person uh, was the host, most high profile person running for for the presidency or for to be nominated for the presidency. So um, the idea was to, uh, for, and Hillary camp was to push Trump, to talk about Trump. The one way they went about it was to uh, have Hillary uh, refer to Trump more often than anybody else uh, and respond to things he said uh, more so than Cruz or, or whoever else. Uh, and in that way, uh, help him effectively to be to get the Republican nomination, um, but at the same time uh, bashing him. And in fact, this uh, 
the, the this information that's come out about their strategy of uh, organizing violence at Trump rallies may may actually have been a part of that as well to focus spotlight on Trump on his campaign uh, for the Republican nomination um, so that he so that he gets it so that then she can beat him. Yeah. So it's all a bit uh, manipulated, you know. It it is. And and if you watch these videos and uh, these interviews with these operatives who are working either directly for the DNC or indirectly for the DNC, uh, you really get an insight into their, uh, their, what they are. Uh, I mean, these these guys take a certain amount of pride in in creating these uh these violent uh disruptive uh perceptions of trump of sending in agitators of creating these stories that uh that that paint trump as this uh as this kind of you know guy as you said neil who where violence follows him everywhere and um you know, when you think that, that these operatives are just a kind of an extension of of who Hillary Clinton is and, and what her uh, what her MO is, uh, it just kind of further paints the picture of a very uh, you know a, a very ugly um, way of thinking and 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 being as a uh, as someone who's running for the leadership of, of the United States. Um so I, I found it. Indeed. I found it useful in that way. Mm-hmm. And you, who is it really that violence follows? Mm-hmm. You know, Hillary's got a, a trail of dead bodies, going back to Vince Foster and others. I mean, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's a very insane sight into the mentality that flourishes mm-hmm. under someone like her. I know Hillary isn't technically the president yet, but. The Clintons have been powerful for 20 years or more. So basically in a Clinton slash Bush regime under which this kind of thing is openly talked about. But they did, they were cagey to some extent. You know, mm-hmm. the other thing that Project Veritas people try to nail them on, which you see in the second video, um, I'm pretty, the bird dogging, they called it, where they agitated Trump supporters. Uh, in the first video, they nailed that. They have them admitting to actively doing that this year. But the other aspect was they wanted to get them um, to admit that they're up to getting into specifically voter fraud by busing in people from a state that's more Democratic-leaning into a neighboring Republican state or county even and have them vote a second time. But it was uh, interesting. They were a lot more cagey about either admitting they were, they were doing that or even admitting that that was something they would consider, you know? So in this case, Bob Kramer, the big, the biggest wig they probably caught on camera saying these things, he himself said, well, that's not legal. That's technically, that's voter fraud. So um, they know it's wrong still, you know, but uh, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't stop them doing it. I think the other guy, Scott Fovel was far more talkative. Mm-hmm. Um, he really believed that he's doing it for the right reasons. As far as he was concerned, all Republicans are, you know, scum of the earth, and that this is completely warranted, this kind of behavior. So there you have an ideologue, someone who really believes in 
and what he's doing for the right reasons. Um, well, and one of the things that they... Go ahead. Go ahead, Dan. Well, just getting back to one of the things that Lon mentioned, or one of you guys, when you watch Scott Fovel, he des- he describes the, the technique and how they keep it indirect, but at the same time, he talks a lot, like you said, so he says, okay, well, the DNC hires this company, and then this hi- company hires us, and so we managed to do all this stuff in order to give the DNC pl- uh, you know, plausible deniability, but really it's coming directly from the top, and we talk with them, and you know everything, uh, everything's um, agreed upon, and we do everything that they want us to do, basically, um, but we, we maintain that distance by going through these various different companies so that it's not directly the DNC that is um, you know, paying the, the agitators. It's like a third party that's doing it, that's getting money from a second party that's getting money from the first party. And so he just kind of like lays it all out there on exactly how it works. And he's very, this is Scott Fovel. He's very open about, um, it's all, it's like, he's got this kind of duper's delight. Like he's bragging about how they go about doing it for Mm -hmm. in like the whole video. He's got this kind of, uh, braggadocious quality to him. And it's just, it's really eye opening. I think, I think on the one hand, it's probably not very um, out of the ordinary. Like he says, we've been doing this for 50 years. Like this is probably how every election works. Uh, This is just the first time that we have it on tape where people are admitting to these kinds of dirty tricks. So on the other hand, it is a big big story because we've got these guys now on tape. And when it comes to the response from the White House or from Hillary Clinton – it's really interesting to watch how they respond because, of course, they're they're doing their best to deny it, but even then, they're not doing a very good job at uh, at denying it. Uh, I've got a clip we can play here. This um, this is a question asked to John Ernest. Uh, he's the White House spokesman, so it's just a couple of minutes long, and you can get an idea of how they're playing it, how they're how they're trying to spin it at this early stage uh, of the development. So I'm just going to go ahead and play that clip. Um, the uh, Project Veritas videos that uh, have been uh, making the rounds uh, of late. Uh, does the White House have any reaction to the dismissal or the severance of two veteran Democratic operatives after the release of the latest Project Veritas videos? In particular, I want to draw your attention to uh, Robert Kramer, a convicted felon who visited the White House, according to reports, 342 times, also met personally with the President some 47 times, the most recent occasion being in June of this year? Well, uh, I've been asked about um, uh, videos that have come from this outlet uh, in the past, and each time I've tried to um, uh, urge people to take those reports not at face value, uh, and not just with a grain of salt, but maybe even a whole package of salt, uh, because um, despite what the name might suggest, these videos have not often revealed the truth. Um, Do you have so, people that were sort of shoved out or walked away based on the release of these videos? Yeah, and so uh, uh, that is true. And uh, so that's why I'm reluctant to comment directly on the videos themselves. I think there is a principle, though, that I will give voice to, which is I know that there was the suggestion uh, in some of these reports that um, it might be a clever organizing tactic or a clever a political tactic to try to incite violence at political rallies. Um, that's uh, that is entirely inconsistent with 
the president's view about community organizing and waging a vigorous campaign. Uh, that uh, we should attempt uh, and we should uh, have so much confidence in the power uh, of our persuasion and in our arguments uh, that um, we shouldn't have to resort to violence. And in fact, it is completely inappropriate uh, to resort to violence to advance a political goal. And um, that's a, that certainly is a principle that the President strongly believes in. Ms. Crane was concerned with all those visits here to the White House in particular. I'm, I'm wondering, is that a reflection of the ethical standards of the Obama White House, that a guy like that, uh, who, at least according to the videos, admittedly yeah. uh, these videos are in some dispute in some circles, uh, seems to be uh, suggesting voter fraud, a person who is a convicted felon, who is an often frequent visitor here at the White House, it is a reflection, some would argue, of the standards of this White House that that's the type of person that's here with that sort of frequency. Yeah. And, I, and I think at this point I would urge extreme caution uh, and drawing conclusions about anybody's character based on uh, a few hours of uh, having looked at this video because time and time and time again, information that is released by this, information, by this uh, organization uh, is uh, a lot different than initial reports would indicate. Okay. Well, talk about double speak. <laughs> yeah, and and really doesn't speak to any of the substance of uh, what the journalist is asking him. He just kind of asserts what the position what, of the White House is. Right, uh, that's what he's paid for, though, right? Just to not give not give answers. That's what uh, White House uh, press secretaries and State Department uh, sp speaking heads. Spokes, spooky heads are are paid to do, which is to not give answers, generally speaking, and particularly not give answers to the really important questions. Right, and the that's interesting... obviously what these people are very skilled in. I mean, well, some of them more skilled than others. <laughs> it's obviously not yeah. a very easy thing to do, and you have to be <laughs> quite quite uh, quite good at it. If we look back at uh, Marie Harf and Jen Psaki and people like that who just uh, totally messed it up, you know. <clears throat> And in this particular instance, I mean, you know, the, the journalist is asking about this guy, Creamer, who he mentions as a convicted felon. He, he uh, was, I think, put in prison for tax evasion, married to a congresswoman somewhere, uh, had, had previous experience organizing these types of agitations at a Scott Walker rally at some point, and at another time was employed by an organization that was financed by George Soros, which is interesting because, uh, you know, we've, we've seen George Soros do this type of thing, except it to a much more dangerous degree um, abroad uh, in financing and helping to organize color revolutions. So right. it's got shades of that going on too, it seems. Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, color revolution. I was thinking that this whole election is basically America's color revolution. Mm. Um, uh, WikiLeaks put out a tweet a couple of days ago um, summing up their stance on the U.S. elections. Simply said, there is no U.S. election. There is power consolidation, rigged primary, rigged media, and rigged, Pied Piper, in quotes, candidate drive consolidation. That's a reference to that, one of the protest emails about Trump. Um, 
the power consolidation exercise. It's it's like it's a color revolution mm. in all its all the tactics that they've used abroad are employed to the full at home. Um, could be speculated about a possible future scenario where things come to such a head for the U.S. For whatever reason, it might be an economic um, dominoes that start to fall and it forces a political crisis in the U.S. It might be a foreign crisis, uh, stupendous loss in some kind of hot war situation, whatever it is. But what if it's this? What if it's this election, you know? Well, because it's come to it's come to quite an extreme when it's Hillary or Trump. Hillary is obviously establishment of Trump. They played a card there where they expected this guy just to be, you know, the also ran, but mm. it could seriously backfire on them. Yeah, but they don't they they don't expect it to. Nobody does, you know. Mm. Uh certainly everybody uh across the board, across the the Anglo American uh, establishment type thing, including the media and politicians and everybody who has an opinion and has a has a way to uh, voice it in the in the mainstream. Um, all of them are lining up over the past you know few weeks and days to uh, they're lining up to get egg on their face basically. Uh, if in the eventuality of of Trump actually winning, because all of them are saying uh, in one way or another that it's a sure thing that Hillary's going to be the next president. They're saying that now. Yeah. And it's across the board, you know, in English newspapers, uh, French newspapers, European newspapers, and of course across most of the newspapers in the US, they're all saying it's a, it's a, sure, a surefire thing. But... Um, yeah, I'm not. I mean, the rev, maybe the the, rev, the color revolution analogy doesn't really, you know, only goes so far. It doesn't fit in the sense that it's not a. I mean, a color revolution was actually a revolution amongst the people. You know, people in the streets protesting, blah 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 blah. But here, it's 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 a, it's so happening only inside the, inside the establishment. You know, it's uh, it's it's. Too, well, I'm also. I was also bringing in, looking back on the last couple of years of. Black Lives Matter, police brutality, those issues, mm. and how, in the end, from a, from a strategist point of view, they play well into, more or less, into what the left, in quotes, there is no left in America, but the left democratic side stands for. You know what I mean? Hillary coming in now, in theory, if you took a step back and, and ignored all the little evidence of, of, of horror... <laughs> Mm. Anything to do, anything to do with her? It, it, in theory, if you looked at, well, things are in such a way that people are protesting about social justice issues, you know, in a big way, um, and that's associated with a police state with the right, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. harsh authoritarian mm -hmm. measures uh, embodied by a harsh authoritarian ruler. Mm. So, in a way, it's theoretically set up for someone like Clinton, a woman, a lefty, you know, principal, to come in and say, it's okay, I'll take you all, you know, we're going to fix it all together. Mm. You know what I'm, you see what I'm getting at? We're going to be all liberal and stuff and, yeah. and of course, but the problem with, yeah, so Clinton's an establishment figure and they want to, they want Clinton to get in and to come in and of course she's a woman, which I think, you know, I don't know what percentage of women 
voters in America are going to vote for Clinton because simply because she is a woman. I think that uh, there's quite a large number of them, which is just a horrible, uh, it's a horrible uh, indictment on the state of of the thinking ability of the average uh, female or male in uh, in the U.S., where a lot of people would vote for someone based on their gender uh, and nothing else, not even care really. Um, but. So yeah, Hillary Clinton. She's coming in. She's gonna she's gonna sort the country out with lots of bleeding hard liberal values and and bring all all the blacks and whites together. And uh, but she doesn't really fit the profile. Is the problem because for a lot of people anyway, anybody who knows anything about Hillary Clinton, I mean, she's tarnished by her husband. She's tarnished by her own track record. Uh, it's I think it's a very particular type of person who would actually like Hillary Clinton. Even someone who doesn't pay much attention to what's going on or in politics and stuff, she's not someone who just maintains the ability to think a little bit and to observe and to have their own opinion about stuff. She's not the most uh, endearing kind of person. Uh, if you just anybody who's watched her, you know, she's not. Bernie Sanders was, mm. uh, but Hillary Clinton is not. Um, and she also comes with that stamp of uh, an establishment figure, basically. And like I said, her history and uh, there's a history to the Clintons that I think a lot of people in the U.S. are vaguely aware of. So she, she she's tarnished to some extent. So uh, I think that <clears throat> they realize that and certainly try and get her to, uh, I mean, she's, she's a Democrat, right? So she's anti-war, she's lefty, all that kind of stuff, but she's not. Uh, she's the biggest warmonger a public warmonger in, in the country and uh, in, in the political establishment uh, right now. So she's, she's a bit of a, she's a contradiction essentially being a Democrat and, and being given her, given her stance on how, well, how much she loves war and killing and death. So how do you sell someone like that to the lefties and convince them that this is really a leftist kind of candidate? Well, I suppose you just put up a, a Trump play your Trump card and juxtapose her with Donald Trump and you get what seems to be, what seems to have happened amongst a lot of people anyway, or certainly other people had this idea themselves or they were encouraged to believe it by the media because the media has been repeating it and the message is anybody but Trump. Of course, anybody but Trump is a bit... um, bit disingenuous because you've only got one other option for I mean it's like uh, it'd be be okay to say anybody but Trump if there were like five or six seven people to choose from but when you've only got Hillary it's like uh, like a bit of a forced choice right there so um, that's what happens you know that's what's happened it seems or in one way or another so Hillary you know gets shunted into the White House they they hope simply because they've juxtaposed her juxtaposed her with um with someone like Trump and played him up as this violent Neanderthal-like brute uh, and who would want someone like that, you know? But, uh, I don't know, maybe they're not given enough credit to the kind of, whatever awareness a lot of American people actually still do have about the, you know, but nuances or their ability to think in nuanced ways or, or maybe they, they're they trying to target people from just with an information uh, approach. You know, just here's the hard data. Trump did this, Trump did that, Trump did the other. Um, but people still don't 
a lot of people don't make decisions like only on or even largely on what they know or what they hear from the media. It's not facts to sway them. No, it's a, oh, it's a, I don't know, it's just an impression, you know. I mean, they're watching these people, you know, and they're getting information that's flying below the radar at an unconscious level. And it's very difficult to uh, to budget for, for that in order to try and influence that because it is so uh, intangible, really. Mm-hmm. I think, you know. But yeah, um, Hillary Clinton is, uh, I, I don't know how I missed it actually, it's really, it's a great little short article in Time magazine, my favorite magazine <laughs> of all time. Um, and it was from, it's from about, uh, it's about the beginning of this month, 3rd or 4th of October. And it's written by Hillary Clinton. Oh. And it's only about five or six paragraphs. And it's, um, well, maybe six or seven paragraphs. But it's basically, uh, I think the title is, oh, and the title is Why America is Exceptional, I think. Uh, and she just writes five or six or seven paragraphs about how, why America is exceptional. She starts off quoting people who said America is exceptional. Exceptional. Uh, she quotes Abraham Lincoln, said that uh, said that we were, America was the last, the last best hope of Earth. Ronald Reagan said we're a shining city on a hill and Robert Kennedy called us a great, unselfish, compassionate country. And she couldn't agree more. Uh, so she says, um, so she agrees that we're exceptional. America is, I should say. But she goes on then and the, the rest of the article is about uh, how her argument for why America is indispensable. Uh, indispensable because of her network of alliances. She makes explicit reference to Russia and China can't begin to compare with our network of alliances. And she says America is indispensable because we have the largest, most dynamic economy in the world. Right? But most of all, well, she also mentions uh, America is indispensable because because we have the greatest military in history. And we can force people to agree that we're indispensable by threatening them with our military. No, she doesn't say that. But obviously... Between the lines. That's open. But most of all, America is indispensable because of our values. And then she goes on about LGBT, minorities, women, disabilities, and people yearning for peace and love, light, unicorns, that kind of thing. It's a really trite little crappy piece of nonsense. Um, <laughs> but there it is again, the values, you know. Well, yeah. They think that that's enough to hold. Yeah, I mean, it's just like together. Just America, you know. America's great. We're great. This country's great. Everything's great. Believe in the mythos. Believe in the, you know, this from a woman who is a is a freaking warmonger, is a, is a is a war criminal, effectively, if that term can still be applied <clears throat> in this day and age when there's so many uh, levels of, you know, or, or degrees of separation between the people who actually plan the wars and the people who carry them up. But um, she she's a she's a vile, evil woman, clearly who. Um, who glorifies in death and destruction and gets off on it in some way or other that much is clear to anybody who does such, a little bit of research and into her. Such and, a nasty uh, woman. <laughs> such a nasty yeah. woman. She's just a nasty woman. Trump's right, you know. So um, the question is, well, it will, you know, I don't know. I don't expect a lot of Americans to actually know that or um, to, to, to know that in all the detail that we know it in. But... So I think this comes down to the election, whether whether she wins or Trump wins, it's going to come down to that kind of 
impressions effectively in some way or other or some something that isn't very accessible or understandable or definable in any rational intellectual kind of way uh, something within the american voters who will make a decision uh, based on yeah just an on their impression of the, most of them just on their impression of, of the two candidates and i think that's usually why it happens you know um so it's whether or not I think most people actually you know, tend to vote or elect a president, vote for, for a, a presidential candidate um, based on appearance, you know, and whatever they give off, you know, their their persona, you know. Um, and it's whether or not Hillary has been able to mask her uh, evil, the evil that is inside her, uh, or whether that has... has has come through to people and they'll make a decision based on that. Um, so I suppose we'll see, you know. Looks like we've got a caller. Caller, you're on the line. Can you let us know hey. who you are? Hey. Oh, is this Stephen? Yes, it is. Hi, yes, Stephen. Thank you. <laughs> yes, um, I'm enjoying y'all's show so far. Um, yeah, I I, uh, I listened to some of the debate and um, interestingly, I, I fell asleep. I, I fell asleep wow. in the last part of it, and I had actually no no compunction to even review the part that I I fell asleep on. It was just so all the pundits and just everything's just so lame. But um, I had some interesting conversations this week, and um, with people that are um, kind of like historically like right wing Republican males, and um, they. Um, What's interesting is like on the subject of Syria, which because I because I've developed friends in Syria, it's been a major topic in my life and uh, what I follow day to day. They are they're totally cognizant. They're totally aware that we're supporting the United States is supporting terrorists. And um, and then when I speak with liberals, people that are have been liberals, they're totally deluded and uninformed on the issue of it. They, they don't, it's like in their mind, um, it's just a morass of confusion, the whole deal. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, my, these, my Republican friends, which mind you, my position, I've been historically, you know, on the, on the far left of the spectrum. But when I, when I, I'm, I have more common ground with these, uh, historically conservative Republican types, um, not on any issues like, uh, you know, welfare or whatever, but when it comes down to, you know, what our foreign policy is and should be, um, I have more in common with these historically conservative Republican types than, than these liberal types. It's like, uh, it's like I woke up, um, through the looking glass and everything is reversed. You know, it's quite an interesting yeah. phenomenon. Go ahead. No, that's just no, an interesting. We had some feedback there. Right. You turn your speakers down there. Uh, no, I'm just on a, I'm on a computer uh, okay. laptop. Okay. Anyway, I'll just make my comment. Um, I'd notice this too that on the big issues, it's kind of like left and right in quotes are their positions have swapped. They've been inverted. Although, yes. as Joe was pointing out. To me recently, well, in the end, yeah, it's, it's it's not even so clear because there's always been one party, a war party. 
and anything else, there's room for debate within the U.S., but in the end, there's just the war party. Mm -hmm. And and also, and another thing that's interesting is that these, um, I I am, I am admittedly, and I'm admittedly a fan of uh, Vladimir Putin. And I know that, (sighs) yeah, well, well, what I find interesting is, is anybody in the United States, you're always supposed to preface it with, oh, I know Putin's not a good guy and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) I'm like, Give me a break. No, I think Putin is a good guy. I'm, I'm sure there's um, to get to power and maintain power in that that the system that he has to rule. It's on, it's not a pretty system. It's an oligarchical system. And there's a lot of crap that goes on. that's not pretty. But, you know, having said that, I think that the guy is um, I think he's got his head on straight on where we need to go as a planet, as a a mass of humanity going into the future. I think he has a healthy outlook on where we, we can go and where we should go. Um, and also I, I think that he's been a force of good and he's, um, he's a, he's a leader, even do, 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 do Tarte is, is, um, you know, praising Putin and from the Philippines. Right. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I'm just kind of remarking today on my, uh, my kind of weird situation here in the United States where I'm not going to vote for Trump. Um, but at this and I do see him as not very intellectual. He hasn't been that, that smart, but when you have the whole of the deep state, the bankers, when everybody, when everybody is like cheering on for him to lose, it's kind of hard for me to not be sympathetic with Trump <laughs> given that scenario mm-hmm. that, under right now so um yeah go ahead i was just gonna say it's, it's kind of interesting if you look if you look historically at the whole left right thing you know traditionally the kind of conservative party uh, conservative uh the conservatives in the u.s were you know they were kind of like uh which are kind of traditionally seen as kind of like the, but but not so much warmongering but defensive and very insular and you know conservative basically traditional values all that kind of stuff and I think it came out of the 60s and 70s and the free love and all that kind of stuff mm. of liberalism and free yeah. love and let's, let's expand America out and let's, let's embrace the world. Let's not, let's, let's, let's reach out to the world. Let's not be so conservative and insular mm. in, our, in our outlook and stuff. And that was all good. It sounds good, but only, it's only good if you've got good people at the helm doing that. And if you, if you, if you can stick to it, but I mean, it seems that even then that was latched onto, uh, fairly quickly and seen as basically a way to, uh, you know, to kind of go around the world as part of it was used to go around the world and, you know, let's spread American love and all this kind of stuff around the world. Let's go out there and defend American interests over there. Right. And yeah, defend American interests over there and all that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, well, open it all up. Type the of thing. 60s gave rise to the reaction, which was reaction that the counterweight, which was the moral majority. Yeah. And the return of evangelism in a big way in the States. And then... Right. That gave way to Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Ten years of Reagan. But, but all, if you've got already it, if you've got there, it, if it's corrupted because there's a Bush in the White House. Yeah. And he's no he's no conservative. No, he's not. At all. He, absolutely. So it was a new paradigm was, was launched that, that basically merged conservatism and, and, and liberalism or, or, you know, lefty politics. Uh, and it was, and it's neither of those. The people... Who embody like Bush, Clinton, Obama, all of them, 
are part of the, the establishment party. There's a third party in America. There's a Democrats, Republicans, and an establishment party that merges both of those. And, and Democrat and Republican is just for public consumption, basically. There's an establishment party, and it's about greed. It's about unfettered greed and going around the world and stealing as much stuff from all as possible and screwing over everybody and remaining top of the heap and dominance, basically. It's the dominance party. We have to be dominant over everybody and everything in the country and around the world. The world is ours. That's, you have to come up with a new political kind of, you know, term or, or, or ideology for, for that. And, you know, you can call it psychopathy. I mean, leftism and liberalism and all that kind of stuff means nothing when the people that are leading that, when, that, that are the, the exponents of that ideology, are just a bunch of greedy psychos. They don't care about, I mean, they use any ideology to get what they want, which is just other people's stuff and domination and control. And, and, and I do think it's a salient point um, to recognize that, um, you know, in our history, as far as there being leftists, uh, a, a left in the United States, that was more defined and um, and clear in the era where we had strong labor unions, where right. there were actual institutions tied to ideology. So um, mm-hmm. with the decline of unions, now we get like with Clinton, the first Clinton, Bill Clinton. Um, slowly, you know, it's like a creeping slow motion thing. Now we don't have these institutions that that kind of that define a left. So this right. week, this week, it's interesting. It's interesting. Just if I can interrupt you, it's interesting that the exact same thing happened in the UK uh, with, you had Maggie Thatcher and, and then John Major after two conservatives and Maggie Thatcher destroyed the union, you know, uh, basically and spearheaded that ruining, you know, wrecking the unions, wrecking union power in, in the UK. And then immediately afterwards, you had uh, more or less you had, you had Tony Blair come in, and he was the new Labour, and he's basically like Hillary Clinton, the War Party. Mm-hmm. And what happens is, um, what happens is, uh, if you look at um, like Republican talking points uh, uh, in the fifties, like yeah, we're for strong unions. We were. If you look at their talking points from the nineteen fifties, they're like left wing Democrats. You know, today it's like so everything gets shifted slowly to the right. Yeah. Where the you know, yeah. all the policies, all the policies that are put that are put forward, and then the the Democrats are supposed to you know care about the uh, worker. Where we haven't had a minimum wage increase since two thousand and nine, and it's seven dollars and twenty five cents. So even the states have to start increasing the minimum wage because at the national level, the Democrats just, they're so tied to the oligarchs that they won't, you know, they won't steadfastly and vociferously, um, you know, basically champion raising the minimum wage to keep pace with inflation. So like we're getting a slow immiseration when prices go up and they don't raise wages, everybody's taking a pay cut, but instead you yeah. don't hear anybody yeah. putting it, but you don't hear any of the Democrats putting it in that kind of logical uh, scenario because they're so bought off by the uh, the big bankers and so forth. It's a it's a disgrace. But I also wanted to mention I was very disappointed this week because one of the staunch one of the staunch anti-imperialists that I'd kind of looked up to and, and I should 
I should never look up to any intellectual. I really shouldn't. But Eric Dreitzer, he penned an essay this week that kind yeah, of signals, yeah, it, yeah, kind of signals that he's about to like, you know, throw throw the real anti imperialism under the bus. And uh-huh. it was such a, uh-huh. it was such a poorly reasoned and muddle headed essay that I was kind of like jolted. But it's you know, and, and I'm sorry for getting up. Uh, he was getting ble- at bleeding hardy. Bleeding hardy. Well, he he called people like me a uh, a an uh, Assad fetishist. I'm I'm an Assad fetishist, right? You see what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So he's bought into the the indivi- the demonization of the individual, which is part and parcel to United States propaganda. So he's conflated people that are pro Syria and want Syria to win. In our anti-imperialist, he's he's using the term Assad fetishist, and that's just a clear sign that he's like, wow, he's Lost he's, blood. he's blood. yeah, he's went into he's went on to the dark side. So on his Facebook page, I made some comments other people have, but he doesn't even bother to go on to defend his position on his mm. Facebook page with counterpunch. So I, I don't know what's up. I mean. I'm kind of thinking that everybody needs to make money and um in in the end you just follow the money when you like like Noam Chomsky uh democracy now I mean they've they've all kind of you know they, they in Libya um Noam Chomsky bought into the dominant propaganda that um Gaddafi's a monster right I mean this is a right. guy that I looked right. up I looked up to this guy for two decades and then he starts coming out with crap analysis, and it's like, is he? Is it because he's old? Um, I, I, you know, I have no idea. But um, anyway, what, what I'm, I'm just pointing this up that you know, there's a, a through the looking glass character of things that that have evolved mm-hmm. in slow motion, and you wake up, and the people that you looked up to before, and you thought were stalwarts, and that were on top of it. You know, when they start when they start like penning this really muddle headed crap and it's like you just don't know what the heck's going on. And that's kind of where we're at here in the United States right now. And um, I've got no idea where it's going to go. But I would say this. I'm going to sign off. But I am very, very heartened about what's going on in Syria. Um, There's a lot to be worried about. You know, the, the strategy might be, you know, probably is to partition. But, um, you know, it was, it's been so heartening watching Russia team up with the Syrian people and the army and the government to like change this narrative and and change the facts on the ground in Syria. And um, if we could ever bring peace to this area, you know, that would be a remarkable accomplishment. So anyway, but I'm just going to sign off and listen to the rest of y'all's show. Okay. All right. Thanks. All right. Thanks for your call. call. See you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Great yeah, as, great as always, from Stephen. Yeah, that's that's the sign of the times, isn't it? Illusions falling left, right, and center. Well, yeah, I mean, it's all being exposed. You know, I mean, it's not that it was that way, it was always that way necessarily. I mean, but it's just like we were saying that um, that a bunch of psychos have taken over, taken control, uh, taken over the helm, and and ideologies mean nothing to those people. They have their own ideology, their own psychopathic ideology, which is domination and control of as much uh, as possible. And of course, they lie, and but they use the ideologies to keep people enthralled to them, mm-hmm. so that they can continue to 
uh, wage their their personal wars, and it, really, it is very much a personal war for these people. I mean, that was made clear by um, by Clinton uh, in her in her little video where she was supposedly speaking between two interviews or something or breaking an interview uh, in 2011 where she was gloating over the death of, of Gaddafi, uh, a guy who did nothing to her. Can you imagine anybody listening to this? Can you imagine ever watching a 70-year-old year old man you had never, never met or maybe you met him once or twice but he'd never done anything to you personally and as far as you're concerned, he hadn't done anything necessarily to anybody else. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that he was actually did, did a lot of good for a lot of people. But anyway, he, he, you have no personal grievance against him. And when he's publicly kind of sodomized and executed and brutalized in the street, can you imagine watching that and then laughing and gloating about it? That one video tells people everything they need to know about Hillary Clinton. That is a man, a seven-year-old man that she never hadn't, that did nothing to her ever, mm-hmm. and she laughs it up and gloats and with with a look of glee on her face, the fact that he was brutalized and, and publicly executed. Yeah, and the only difference between her and the establishment she represents is that they're more true, true blue, true blood, um, northeastern establishment dynasties, whereas she's from Arkansas. She's more of a hick version of what they are, huh. but she represents their same mentality when she's doing well, that. Well, she's a, she's a, she's she's got the enthusiasm for it, you know. She's someone who's willing to put herself out there and say, "I'll lead the charge for more death and destruction," you know, uh, or more exceptional death and destruction. It's just the whole thing. Yeah, I don't know. It's just ridiculous, you know. Well, Joe, you mentioned so, that. Oh, go ahead. What were you going to say? Yes, Harrison. Well, okay. Joe no, had mentioned. I was change. Uh, okay, before we change, there's one more thing. So, Joe, you'd mentioned okay. um, how for the past days and weeks, the mainstream media, and not not only in the States, but in, in other countries too, like UK and France, have been talking as if uh, Clinton has this election, you know, in, in her pocket. And you can see this uh, too um, for the past few weeks, um, after every debate, Saturday, Saturday Night Live has done a little opening skit kind of making fun of the debate and uh, Alec Baldwin plays Donald Trump and then they have um, what's her name from mm. SNL that plays Clinton and neither of them um, do a, a flattering portrayal you know of either of these candidates but in each of these skits there are several jokes throughout each one where it, they where it makes it clear or they try to give the impression that this is the facts that uh, that Clinton has this thing nailed and so mm. you can see it in each of these skits and how it's just it's just they present it as being totally obvious. So in the first debate at one point Clinton says she just starts crying and then the the guy playing the moderator says, "Oh, you know, Hillary, why are you crying?" She says, "Oh, I'm just this is going so well. It's all it's everything I imagined yeah. it to be because she's winning, right?" And then in this latest right. one, she um um uh, the, uh, Tom Hanks is playing uh Chris Wallace, is that his name? And um and says, oh, you know, by now it's just pretty much accepted that uh, Clinton's going to win this one and you're going to lose Donald Trump. And then Alec Baldwin says, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I admit it. it like, so yeah. they're giving this image as if that's going to be exactly what happens, and right. which is interesting because um, if you look at even a lot of the, the mainstream you know, rigged polls, it's pretty, pretty close. 
It's not like they're showing mm-hmm. Clinton with a huge lead over Trump. And then if you look at all of the um, kind of social indicators of support, whether it's Twitter or um, just um, or Twitter polls or Twitter tweets or um, kind of ad hoc polls elsewhere and just signs of um, social support, Trump, you know, beats Clinton on all of those. Mm-hmm. I mean, the... There was just a, a report a few days ago on someone. This one um, study group did a an analysis of all these like millions of tweets over a long period of time using like pro Clinton and pro pro Trump hashtags, and um, you know de- tried to determine which of these tweets were tweeted out by bots. So this will be when a Twitter user um, uses a program to just retweet something like forty times during a day, and so they eliminated all those tweets. Found out that uh, you know. According to their analysis, who knows if it's right or not, Trump had like one-third of his tweets were by bots, and Clinton, it was one-fifth of her tweets. But uh, Trump still had three times more tweets, um, legitimate tweets, than Clinton did. And that's just one example. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, you can look at the at their followers on all their pages, uh, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, etc. And Trump just naturally, in, in all these areas, he beats, he beats Clinton. And you can see this in the the popularity or the the number of people coming to the rallies, the number of people just showing support on the street. So it seems to be that Trump does have more popular support, which suggests to me that it's probably more likely that he will get more votes. And then when you take into the project, go ahead. I was going to say, what's wrong with Donald Trump as a president? Uh, He's rude. (laughs) Huh? He's rude. I mean, does I mean Donald Trump's? Yeah, he's a he's a potty mouth narcissist. Mm-hmm. But present company and listeners excluded, <laughs> is that not fairly representative of the average American? Mm-hmm. I mean, in the in the modern day, I mean, and maybe particularly young people and stuff. I mean, obviously, you know, I don't know American and stuff, but as a general. It's not even that he's potty, potty mouth narcissist. I mean, he is, um, uh, but he's also a successful entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. He he's got a lot of money. He's rich. He's successful. TV is that not star. representative of, Ameri- of Americanism? Yeah, yeah. Is you, that not is that not a good representation of what's held up in America today as being, uh, as being something that everybody should strive for? Yeah. To be rich. And when you're rich, you can be as potty mouth, whatever, and and sexist, whatever as you want, right? Yeah, <laughs> because that's your privilege. But I mean, it seems to me that he is very, very, a very good representation of of everything that America strives for and everything that America espouses. Uh, at least you know domestically, in terms of what it wants for its people, it's capitalism on steroids, right? It's like you too can be president, you too can be super rich and be president. And here's Donald Trump, and he worked his way up and. You know he's a good businessman. He's super rich, and he and he enjoys the the perks of, of that. Why why is that a problem? Well, maybe it's a problem because while American people allow themselves to be that way or aspire to those things, their presidents or their elected officials or their authorities or whatever are meant to be better than all that. And that's why these like uh, you know movie stars and famous people and stuff who are all voting for for Clinton because they don't want to look in the mirror. Basically, when they look at Trump, they're looking in the mirror. And they don't like it. So they want someone who at least ha- puts on the appearance of being above all that. Mm-hmm. Yes, she, she puts on a very, very sophisticated uh, 
presentation. Uh, right, that, but what the missing is just look behind the scenes. You see that she's a warmonger. She also she embodies the worst the worst aspect of American uh, Americanism or American culture or the American ethos, which is embodied by that elite, by that ruling elite that has been there for quite a long time, and that is war and destruction. Mm-hmm. You know, controlled chaos. American foreign policy is about seeding controlled chaos in in important geostrategic regions around the world. That's their policy. And when I say control chaos, I mean using jihadi, proxy, armies, death squads, all that kind of stuff, uh, phony color revolutions to basically, uh, you know, throw a country into turmoil and if necessary, lots of death and destruction and bombings and terrorist attacks and all that kind of stuff to control that area of the world. When you feel like you're losing control of a certain country, set it in fire. That's American foreign policy. Which they fear Trump threatens. Right. Trump is, is, is not part of that establishment that understands that that's mm. the way that you deal with things. That's the way you, you wage uh, foreign policy. Harry might say he's inexperienced. Right. Because Trump is basically a bit more naive. Mm-hmm. Again, uh, a quality that is very often ascribed to uh, American people. They're naive. So Trump is the perfect American. And for me, he's the perfect guy to lead America in, in, let me qualify that, in the context of Hillary Clinton being the, the only alternative. Mm-hmm. I, will, I will say this about Trump, uh, especially watching him in the debates. Uh, there are a few moments where, you know, he, he has this righteous indignation about him. That's correct. Mm-hmm. And... Um, even though you know three quarters of what he says is is so wrongheaded and bombastic and ridiculous, you know, it, 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 if only for those few moments. I mean, this is how desperate we are for a little bit of truth in in this context. But if only for those few moments that that he comes out and and says something like truly uh, damning and true about uh, you know what what the U.S.'s policy has been in Syria or uh, its attitude towards Russia. I mean, he very reasonably says, yeah, it would work with Russia. Why not? You know? Um, right. It's refreshing. Well, part of that is, if you were to just watch the debate without sound and just look at their, their facial expressions and their body language, Clinton is very um, fake and scripted, and like she gives, she's putting on a persona of this reasonable, um, smiling, kind of creepy person. And so whenever, whenever Trump would say something um, justifiable, justifiably critical of Clinton, she gets this big uh, grin on her face, which is just, it's totally unnatural. And the other time she'd grin, it's a slightly different grin, is when Trump says something kind of stupid and she realizes that she's got the perfect response to it. And both of them are really kind of um, not very um, attractive, not like a, attractive in the sense of, oh, this is like a decent person. It's really kind of backhanded and um, two-faced when you when you just watch it. But then when you look at Trump, like Alan was saying, there are these few moments. Like there's one where he, in the early part of the debate, he brings up this Project Veritas stuff and Clinton kind of responds to it. And then later on in the debate, Clinton gives her talking point about how, how violence follows Trump around everywhere. And if you look at how horrible these Trump supporters are and how horrible Trump is for, for uh, fomenting this violence. And you look at Trump and he just gets that, this look on his face. Like uh, she, he puts his arms in the air and the look on his face is like, what the heck is she talking about? And you just look at his, his reaction and it's a perfectly normal mm-hmm. and natural reaction. Totally. 
genuine, yeah. And then he responds to her, and right. he responds totally correctly. He says, well, you're the one that paid them. You started this violence. And it's totally genuine and totally true. So he's got these few moments where he's actually the reasonable one. And, and any time that Clinton is reasonable, she's reasonable because her team has worked on these, on the perfect way to say, to sell this policy on the American people. Like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to invest in you. We're going to invest in you, the middle class. And it's just these political talking points that people have been hearing their entire lives and that never get followed through on. Whereas, right. you know, Trump will say a whole bunch of really stupid stuff. Like, you know, he, he goes on and on about Iran. And how evil Iran is, and how bad the Iran deal is, and how Iran's taken over Iraq. Like, and he, so, some just nonsense stuff. But he's got these few moments where he's actually genuine in telling the truth. And that's like a breath of fresh air for a lot of people, I think. That, you know, they're just grasping, grasping for that tiny little bit of truth, and then he's doling it out to them. And you don't get any of that yeah. from Clinton. Yeah, that's very true. And again, like, what, what it comes back to for me is I mean, I know this is wishful thinking, but. It's the BS around it all, you know. It's the fakery and the lies and the make believe and the, you know, pretending you're one thing when you're actually another. And I mean, I would be so much happier. I've said this before about uh, kind of American foreign policy and what they do. You know, if they were just honest about it, you know, uh, if they wouldn't, if they would stop trying to lie to everybody and, and basically say they're doing exactly the opposite of what they're really doing. It would be fine, you know. I would be like, okay, let the chips fall where they may. The same applies to the presidential, uh, this presidential race, you know. If if you could just pull back the the, the you know the curtain or the pull down the charade of it all and just say, listen, let's just have the presidential, you know, fight. Let's call it a fight or a competition, presidential competition between two people, and it should be who can who can. Uh, slander and defame the other person more or more convincingly with with all of the American population uh, fully aware that these people are basically lying to each other. You know, they could have a defame off uh, instead of a dance off or something like that. They could have just a slander off, you know, and who's the best at telling the most, uh, you know, pitching the other person, uh, presenting them in the worst possible light, you know, saying the worst possible things about each other. And then you would vote on who's the best you know, liar, basically, you know, or who's the best, who won that competition, you know, because uh, that's basically what it is, you know, uh, well, and that's what it's always been. They've basically, they've all just, I mean, when they were, when they were two establishment candidates, they would just, they would make nice. But now it's, uh, it's the point where the kind of gloves are off. And this is what's interesting about this presidential debate is that the gloves are kind of off in a certain sense. And people are talking about it being one of the most, um, most bitter presidential, uh, competitions uh, in, in in a long time, you know, because previously when you had Kerry and Bush, well, cut from the same cloth, they're not going to, you're not going to attack each other very, very bitterly or strongly because, you know, Kerry knows that he's going to be, uh, he's going to get a position in, in the government some sometime pretty soon, you know, or whatever. He knows he's, he's in the system. He knows he's going to, he has power already. He's a senator. You know, these people, you know, those people in the system, they don't. They know they're not losing so much if they lose a, a presidential race because they're already in the system. They're already exploited and have been exploiting it for a long time. But Trump's different in that he's come in and he actually maybe he actually wants to be president in a genuine kind of way. You know, he's a bit naive about it, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's why it's much more bitter this time. You know, but in that context, let's just you know, 
we've we've been talking about the fact that Clinton is uh, Clinton's been engaging in all sorts of dirty tricks and stuff. Trying, she's she's trying to defame the guy. You know? What he's saying about her is true, though. I know. Well, that's the problem. That's what it comes down <laughs> that's to. That's, that's my secret. I'm trying to encourage, I'm trying to encourage uh, the, the elite of this world to just come out and just be honest with everything they're doing and say, we'll accept it. But the problem is, you know, the secret behind that is that they'll be leading them into a trap <laughs> in the sense that they will be up against the truth, you know. Uh, and that's, uh, that gets back to, like, the, the White House... Um, press secretary or the State Department spokespeople, the reason they have such problems, the reason why Marie Harf and Jen Psaki and uh, those other people all... Curveball, Kirby. ...went by the wayside is because they couldn't handle it because they're standing up there and they're trying to tell you effectively that, uh, that black is white. They're trying to argue. They're trying to make a point that black is white. And very often they're being presented with, with points or questions that are self-evidently true and they have to deny them. Well, and they look like idiots when they try and do it, and they're not smart enough. They look like it. idiots to you and I and the listeners, but they get promoted after that. I know. For, for do you know who was, do you know who team. was doing their job before them? Victoria, yeah, Victoria Newland. Newland. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's what they're all aiming for. A better job, basically, if they can if they can stand up there and look like an idiot <laughs> and a liar for for long enough, they'll actually get a get promoted. You know, the the Let's slander they're hitting Trump with day after day at the moment is uh, that he's guilty of sex, sexual misconduct of some form or another. But they've now had, what, nine? No, 11. Yeah. Today, the 11th woman came forward to allege that Trump sexually assaulted her. <laughs> this woman is a porn star, right? Um, Jessica Drake is her stage name. Actually, she calls herself a sex educator. Yeah. Um, I think that's the bottom of the barrel in terms of what they're <laughs> what they're going for. In that's terms of, all they've got, right? Well, they've reached bottom. Like when she, they, when she put she turns out porn movies and calls them a series of erotic educational films starring her, yeah. butt naked. Excuse the term. And it's no longer a porn movie; it's an educational film, right? Okay. Anyway, um, this woman she's been coached. The last this woman and the last two are coached by a lawyer called Gloria Allred. That's not her real name either, actually. She is uh, a Democratic Party delegate representing Pacific Palisades in Los Angeles, which is home to thousands of Hollywood A-list movie stars. Uh, she was obviously a Clinton delegate at the DNC in July. So there's, there's, this is clearly another dirty tricks campaign on behalf of the Democrats. <clears throat> but um, I wonder how many people in the States make this connection when Hillary is, is hitting the Donald with this political tool of being misogynist slash groper, dirty old man, because Clinton, unlike this, you know, this dispute is Trump's word against the porn star's word. There is serious hard evidence that Bill Clinton partied with a known and convicted elite pedophile billionaire Jeffrey Jeffrey Epstein mm-hmm. aboard his Air Lolita flights to some island in, in the Caribbean <clears throat> that it's pretty much established that he sired at least one love child with a black teenage prostitute in the 1980s Bill Clinton and has been named and shamed on dozens of court cases 
brought forward by over 30 women. The most famous, of course, is the, the colonel. I mean, she was 22. He was old enough to be her father when that happened. But that's just the least of it. Uh, <laughs> so to be going after Trump on, you know, sexual impropriety. Mm, it's a height of hypocrisy. Darkly ironic. Yeah. Well, and it's, and it's he, interesting. He really could hit her back. We mm-hmm. got a call on the line, Harrison. Go ahead, oh, yeah. Please. Sure, let's go to call first. Caller, you're on the line. Um, Who do we have with us? Oh, good day, Harrison. Uh, it's Ryan uh, Hi, from Australia. How you doing? Good. How about you? Uh, not too bad. Um, yeah, just, um, uh, yeah, great show. Um, been um, interesting to hear all of the all the latest from sort of uh, the world of um, Trump, Clinton slash Trump sort of thing. <laughs> um, but um, just wanted to sort of take it in a slightly different direction. Um, I just, just had a, got a question for Joe. Um, this Gaddafi being sodomized thing, I've had a look at, I first became aware of that reading something that Assange um, said. And then I went and looked at it and sort of started to sort of dig into it a little bit. And it seems like all of all of this narrative is about um, him. Uh, are you there? Hello. Yep. Yep. We are. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, oh yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, th- this um, narrative about him being sodomized all seems to come back to this one particular video that was um, obtained by some you know backwater um, media organisation from one of the rebels somewhere, possibly from an Intel agency, who knows. Um, And like, if you actually watch the video, there's no sign that anything like that actually happened. It just like, they, they actually say in this particular article, like, Oh, if you, if you look at this exact time in the video and you stop here, that like, that's when it happened kind of thing. But there's nothing there other than what to me looks like, Gaddafi getting pushed and shoved and and sort of you know otherwise beaten up by uh, like a bunch of angry rebels basically or angry jihadi you know mercenaries and so I was wondering like like have you actually seen any evidence like any hard any hard evidence that this actually did happen to Gaddafi or is it all just complete BS narrative that's sort of been spun up to sort of you know, sort of grind the enemy into the dirt sort of thing, like like, like put some extra humiliation on it and try and sort of like um, make some sort of rah-rah where America look what we did sort of thing. Like, Well, I don't think it would be in America's favour to, to, to promote that necessarily, but um, to the extent that they're recognised as, as being responsible for it. But... Um, I think it, yeah. In terms of um, the people on the scene, the the, the local Western-backed jihadi nutjob rebel thugs, uh, they would want to kind of highlight it. And the video that I saw, okay, saying that it's sodomized is a is maybe taking it a bit far. But I saw a video, uh, or the video that you're referring to, uh, it was pretty clear that somebody. Uh, he had his clothes on, he had pants on at the time, but that basically someone had a stick of some description and um, 
you know, shoved it up his backside to a certain extent. And, uh, <laughs> you know, um, well, so, so, but the thing is that doing that to someone is, I mean, the U.S. military in Baghdad probably did that uh, for real, uh, you know, probably hundreds or maybe thousands of times to innocent Iraqis, and it was seen it's seen amongst these kind of people as being the if you're going to torture someone or if you're going to break someone down in their lingo, um, it, it's it's seen as a, a, way, a way to go, you know. So um, it's not unusual, and um, I mean, I think that's why it's gained some some credence. And as far as I'm concerned, in the video that I watched, it did you know happen to to a certain extent, but uh, of course. You know, I use it to highlight uh, the brutality as well um, with which he was treated and and then killed, uh, executed by these Western well, I don't, uh, I don't think, jihadis. I don't think he was tortured. Is... Sorry, sorry, go on, Ryan. No, no, no. You were saying? No, carry on, Ryan. Oh, um, I, I do like. I don't think it's out of the out of the realms of possibility that they would actually like you know nut job jihadis would actually do something like that. It's just that it seems the whole thing has seems to have this particular flavor of here's some sort of dicey fifty fifty kind of footage that we've sort of we're gonna we're gonna put a narrative onto. And then, like, let people read into that, and then see what we tell them to see, kind of thing. And um, but there's no actual, real kind of hard evidence that, like, if you really sort of look at it frame by frame, kind of thing, that it actually did happen. But because it, it creates a kind of a sensationalist aspect, uh, people have then, you know, they're. they're then picked up and run with it, and um, you know, there's probably various for various different agendas. Various people would want to sort of promote that as being what actually did happen. Um, but I haven't. Uh, I mean, I, I probably haven't seen all the all the footage that's out there. Um, I haven't seen any video that sort of like shows any kind of stick or anything like that um, that looks obvious to me. Like uh, the, from what I've seen, it's just like it looks like he's he's getting roughed up by a, a crowd of like brutal, angry mercenaries, basically. Yeah, Ryan, um, it was a sensational event, whichever way you cut it. Mm -hmm. The leader of a country for about 40 years was lynched after being tortured. I think they attempted to set him alight and then they shot him and he's dead. It doesn't really matter how exactly they tortured him, you know? It doesn't, it doesn't change much to what happened to me anyway um well i i think the details uh, are how, how does it change for you maybe you can explain to us what 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 what, what difference it, it would make whether, whether they actually sodomized him or not well well i think there's an element of humiliation in it that um that um sort of like speaks um like speaks to a, like a certain kind of dominance of saying that, you know, this, this, this is how powerful the enemy is because they were able to do this. Like, and, um, this is what happened to Gaddafi. And, um, you know, the, the implication is sort of there that, 
um, like this is what happens to people who oppose, you know, freedom and democracy, quote unquote, with um, the sort of subconscious suggestion being there from all of the media propaganda that, the, you know, like NATO was behind the bombing and everything like this. It's like these guys are on our side. Therefore, we did this. Therefore, if you oppose us, look what will happen to you kind of thing. Um, so, like, the more brutal they make his death, like, I think it reflects back to, you know, like the, the psycho- a psychological attack on human beings in general, I think. Um, and mm-hmm. thus, by disproving as much of the, the bullshit associated around that as possible, um, it negates, I think, some of the psychological impact overall, and that could be important in that sense. Well, I, okay, I, would, I see what you're getting at. Yeah, Neil, I, I just um, to just to extend on what you were saying, Neil, I, I think it's kind of the difference between seeing Qaddafi's uh, capture, torture, and murder as you know ninety four percent brutal versus ninety nine percent brutal, um, and and while your question, Ryan, is, um, you know, how, how much does this, the, the, the point of whether or not that's true, that he was or was not sodomized, uh, it, it almost becomes a probably less um, significant in the grand scheme of things than the fact that uh, he was brutally murdered uh, at all and that we would have someone like Hillary Clinton come out and so uh, horribly um, gloat over such a horrific thing, especially when, when we know that for so long uh, Gaddafi was you know, far from a brutal dictator, one of the most progressive leaders in the middle, that, that the Middle Ryan, East or Africa had ever let, had. Let me just interject here, Ryan. Ryan, I mean, the guy was obviously, I mean, I don't, I don't know what videos you've watched, right? But the guy was obviously dragged around like a piece of meat, beaten, you know, stabbed, uh, shot a couple of times, thrown into a, you know, covered in blood, thrown into, he was, you know, dragged through the mud, dragged through the dirt. I mean, it doesn't get much more humiliating than that. But if you want, I mean, I can send you a video. I mean, it obviously doesn't equate to actual sodomization. But there's, there's, in the process of him being dragged out of the place where where he was, where his convoy was bombed, first bombed by 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 NATO planes that allowed these hyenas. To descend on him, there's in the process of him being dragged out of that uh, the 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 kind of like a culvert or a concrete uh, pipe that that him and a few others had taken taken cover in or whatever. Uh, there's a, there's a moment where one of his captors has a stick and they he, he's you know Gaddafi's wearing a kind of tan pants and a shirt, but there's a moment that quite clearly where one of them has a stick and they shove it up his backside. Yeah, I posted a link to it in the chat if you want to is see it, the, is the it, frame. Is that, good, is that good enough? Is that good enough? I mean, it's not. Uh, well, I mean, if, I mean, if you it's guys, suggestive. If I don't know. That, like, uh, if you well, guys say that you've seen, I'll send you a link, Ryan. Okay, uh, but so it's, I mean, it's it's not it's not on tape, but I don't know what else they did to him, you know. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, I, I, just, I just wondered if anyone had actually seen any like hard evidence. That's all, because like yeah, from from what I've just looked at in my research, it just seemed like it was all just a sort of a, a vague narrative that sort of got picked up and repeated. But I mean, if you guys have are actually you, seen, are you in the chat room, Ryan? 
no, not logged into it. No. Okay. Um, I can, well, I can see the I can see the chat responses. Um, okay. Well, I I just posted uh, a link there, and you can look at it if you like. Oh, yep. Okay. Yep. Copied. Okay. I'll, I'll look at that a bit later on. All right. Well, listen, we got to, we got to move on here, Ryan. So we're gonna let you go. Uh, no problem. I've I've got um, one other thing you might find a little bit interesting, right? The the other week mm-hmm. um, you mentioned about um, Australia's oil um, supplies in connection with um, uh, the the whole Eurasia inter, Eurasian integration thing. Um, a guy Ross Jones uh, here wrote a really interesting article where he mentions uh, that Australia does not have any imported um, refined petroleum at all. So we've got no refining capacity here in Australia. All all of our, even if we actually export oil, um, there's no, all of the usable fuel that we we come here, that comes that is used in, used in Australia all comes like he says. Um, but it, since since Caltex, Exxon, Shell, and Mobile Mobile all responsible corporate citizens decided to close their local refining operations. Australia has no effective capacity to refine oil for petrol, diesel, lubrication, or kerosene, AV gas. Mm-hmm. We import it all, 80% through Singapore, right. 100% via sea lanes. Without open sea lanes, Australian society, as we know, it would cease to exist in about three weeks. That's the National Fuel Reserve. After that, it is seriously mm-hmm. downhill. Wow. Well, so, well um, that speaks, speaks volumes to their... The war games with the uh, with the US, um, like earlier this year, where they were part of the uh, part of the plan of the the war game they were having was that the US and with the US uh, Australian military would uh, they were simulating closing down the Straits of uh, the Malacca Straits, and that's where uh, Australia gets its oil through. Okay. So yeah. So yeah, I think just, they call it um, Operation. I don't know Operation Chinese Barbecue or something. I don't know something safer. <laughs> something, yeah. Oh, Talisman Saver. Uh, yeah, that one. Yeah, that simulated closing down the Malacca Straits. Um, but you know, it's all anyway. It's all hubris. Um. Well, we got another call here, Ryan. We're going to let you go, okay? Yeah. Thanks for your call. No, no, no problems, mate. Cheers. Okay, take take care. Okay. All right. Have, have bye, a good day. Bye. Oh, no, we don't have another call. We have somebody no, asking yeah. from media. Uh, anyway, let's move on to something else. Other than, uh, I'd just like to say something about it's important to not get hung up on details sometimes. Try and come back to context. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Libyans Around that time, were being hauled into mosques, tortured, raped, and then dismembered. That's according to testimony from people who were there. So, you know, the detail of whether one person in particular suffered a particular, you know, in context, this kind of thing was going on. Absolutely, certainly, definitely. Same as in Syria, eating hearts of people, yeah. killing kids to then say, oh, look, and taking video and saying, look, look what the Syrian government did. So I... That kind of evil and far worse than you can imagine is taking place in these exactly. countries. Well, maybe, so moving on. Well, got yeah, maybe on that point, um, we can discuss or update it. 
uh, ourselves a little bit about what is occurring in Aleppo, uh, since there have been some developments there um, in the past week or two. Uh, after the ceasefire uh, broke down, uh, we know that Syrian and Russian forces have been going full on in uh, in destroying the uh, the, the jihadis uh, in Aleppo, and since then have called a ceasefire. Uh, which I believe started Tuesday or Wednesday of, of last week for three days. Uh, and this was a opportunity for uh, those citizens of Aleppo who weren't involved in any way to leave if they wanted to. Um, and, uh, and also it was an opportunity for the militants to leave with their weapons if they chose to uh, get out of the, the war. Uh, which is incredible, in my opinion. Uh, I think um, I think Russia and Syria extended uh, that opportunity for another day or two, um, and I know that there are a number of other things that have been occurring at the same time. But uh, it seems like a very positive development in terms of um, in terms of just creating a safer situation, a truly safe situation uh, on the ground in Aleppo. Well, and this comes, like the original purpose, once, once the documents were released for the cessation of hostilities that fell through, the purpose, as revealed in those documents, was to get the civilians and primarily the, the militants, al-Nusra, out of Aleppo. That was the whole deal with this Costello Road and clearing the Costello Road uh, on both sides so that the humanitarian aid could get in and that the jihadis could get out. That was the whole purpose of it. And it fell through. And after it fell through, of course, the, the U.S. blamed Russia and Syria, um, unrightly, unjustifiably. And so at that point, the Russians and Syrians said, okay, it's no more unilateral measures. In other words, we're not going to agree with anything anymore where we're the only ones abiding by it, and we just give al-Nusra the chance and the opportunity to rearm and regroup. So that's it. We're just going, you know, you had your last chance. So this move, this latest move is actually just another really smart one because now they're saying now they mm -hmm. they basically come forward and say unilaterally, okay, well we're going to cease firing. They do, they stop their all airstrikes, and they have this whole um, infrastructure that they get set up for two um, two corridors for militants to leave safely, six corridors for civilians to leave. They have the UN there, they've got the Red Cross, they've got hospital or ambulances, they've got medical facilities, they've got humanitarian aid all set up, they've got temporary shelter for anyone that will leave, and they've got all of this there, all the media's there, reporters from all over the world to watch this, they've got live broadcasts of um, drone footage and camera webcams showing all the showing the checkpoints and what's going on. So basically, the way I see it, yeah, in truth, it is a, it's an opportunity for a peaceful situation, but really... Because what's going on there is that there are no moderate rebels in East Aleppo, and they're holding the civilians hostage. So that what this really is is, um, uh, it's essentially a PR campaign to show the world that we're, that Russia and Syria aren't the bad guys here; that they are and have done everything that they can to effect a humanitarian solution to what's going on in Aleppo. But it's impossible because these jihadi guys are holding the East Aleppo hostage. And what you see happen in the in the three days that the that this ceasefire opportunity was in in effect was that the jihadis first of all constantly shelled the humanitarian corridors so no one could pass through. They like a few people did pass through. Like the the first day there were like eight wounded militants that the that were able to 
to get through and get um, get uh, medical aid. And then uh, on the second day at at night, I think it might have been after the the ceasefire had officially ended for that day because it it's only applies for eleven hours during daylight. Um, a family of like uh, of six or seven people managed to get through, and who were then interviewed. And you and the some Russian journalists were there interviewing these guys and asking the head of the family, the the father, well, what what's it like there? And he says, well, it's horrible. Um, like the inflation is huge. Like goods cost the 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 goods cost an enormous amount of money, like ten twenty times more than what they would cost in um, in Western Aleppo. That the jihadis basically hoard these food and hold the the civilians hostage. And that's what everyone on the ground says is that they won't let us leave. There was something like two thousand civilians that were ready to leave and wanted to leave from the north part of East Aleppo, and they wouldn't let them. Um, there were reports of executions going on, and um, even militants themselves who wanted to leave, but the, but al-Nusra wouldn't let them. So that's what's really going on, and that's what has, again, been exposed. So really, it's, uh, you know, you won't see this in the Western media, but I think that from the Russians and the Syrians' perspective, it's a matter of establishing the, um, just the facts in a way that that is you know um, can be brought to court essentially. Well, here's what we did. Here's the evidence. Here's everything to show mm-hmm. that the, that the Western narrative is completely false. That that we have provided this humanitarian access. We've given every opportunity possible for exactly what you guys want to happen, but your guys won't let it happen. And so by taking the it was a it was a, a smart movement by taking the U.S. out of the equation because now the U.S. By not being a party to this negotiation, by not being a party to the ceasefire, can't say, "Oh, well, you know, Russia didn't, uh, Russia and Syria didn't do this or that, and break the ceasefire, and then be able to break them, break it." The the Russians and Syrians said, "Okay, well, we're going to do everything, and here's everything we're doing, and it's all reasonable steps. So here are the corridors. Here's all the people. Here's all the organizations around, ready to do it. You can see we're not firing, we're not dropping bombs. So we just open the doors, and no one comes." Mm-hmm. You know, there was an interview uh, with Assad and uh, a journalist from Swiss Television that was just posted to Assad, and it's a, it's amazing. Well, maybe it shouldn't be considered amazing at all, but um, this Swiss journalist was going over the same uh, Western biased talking points: the barrel bombs, the humanitarian attacks on citizens in in Aleppo. Uh, you know the, the the, the boy Omran, who was uh, whose picture was taken um, in a in a kind of semi-staged uh, scene by the white helmets, and Assad again and again has to uh, explain very patiently to these uh, to these uh, completely uninformed or biased uh, Western journalists uh, why it is they don't know what the heck they're talking about. Uh, and that's mm. what it comes down to, because uh, they're they're paid to go in there and kind of present this, you know, uh, objective seeming uh, interview when all or half of the questions are skewed towards the Western narrative. So it's very important that uh, that that the truth uh, part of this story gets out, uh, so that people can continue to see how it is they're being lied to about one of the worst situations, uh, geopolitical struggles we've seen in many years. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, 
No, but um, that pretty much sums it up, and we'll have to see where it goes, you know. I mean, hopefully they'll be able to bring... Uh, the Turkish army's approaching Aleppo. I wonder what's going to happen there. Yeah. I mean, the problem with the Turks, people are very confused about Turkey and Erdogan and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the Turks are primarily, you know, Russia is in Syria to help the Syrian um, army kill, destroy, whatever, uh, the Western-backed jihadis that were, you know, blooded into the country via some jihadi recruitment agency or something, worldwide jihadi recruitment agency that, you know, takes these people's names and gives them jobs to do in in different countries. So... That's what Russia is there for. Turkey is concerned because Russia is right on on the Turkish border. And um, Turkey is concerned about the the American, particularly American plan for uh, Syria, which uh, despite the fact that the Americans, at least in in, in American media, they've accused uh, Russia, uh, Putin, of having a plan to to, um, divide up uh, Syria and different, a few different uh, kind of little autonomous states or something like that. That's actually, that has been the, the American plan uh, fairly soon after they realized that they weren't going to just overthrow the Assad government. And Turkey's concerned about that because part of that seems to have been that um, part of the American plan of dividing up Syria was to give the Kurds uh, a region in the north of Syria that stretched right across from, uh, uh, you know, right across the top of Syria, possibly even into Iraq, but certainly across the top of Syria that top section of Syria right over Syria right over to the Mediterranean was going to be uh, a Kurdistan. That's what you have the Kurd the, the YPG and, and the Kurds and stuff were basically trying to fight their way across uh, over the past few years, fight their way across the north of uh, Syria to create a fact on the ground. They hold that territory, therefore then they would over a period of time claim some kind of independence and Turkey didn't want that to happen at all because that could easily have been extended, you know, in terms of balkanization of the of the entire region, not just Syria, but maybe parts of Iraq and even parts of Turkey, uh, that could have been extended into parts of Turkey. And Turkey did, wanted nothing uh, to do with that, or certainly didn't want, didn't want that to happen because it threatened the territorial integrity of Turkey. I.e., America was threatening the territorial integrity of Turkey by supporting the the Kurds uh, in in this campaign across Syria, and that's why they intervened and pushed them back, and that's why they called their called their campaign the Euphrates Shield and they made it very clear that the Kurds had to stay on the eastern side of the Euphrates which is back where they kind of belong because the Kurds are quite dominant and there's, there's a strong possibility that, uh, that at some point it's possible, we don't know but it's possible, it's more likely in, in Iraq that Iraq would be broken up into three states and of course that was the plan for the Americans all along right like way back in 1997 I think they had a they had a policy plan of of, of breaking Iraq up into three separate states. Um, I mean, that's the American plan. Is apart from controlled chaos, it's a, it's about balkanizing, which is the term, you know, after Yugoslavia. It's breaking up countries that are non-compliant, get in there and sow division and, uh, you know, uh, exacerbate uh, ethnic or stoke ethnic or religious uh, fault lines and, and break the country up. And it's more manageable that way. And this was kind of plan B for, for Syria. But it was going to threaten uh, Turkey's uh, territorial integrity, so the Turks didn't want anything to do with it, and that's why the Turks are in, in northern Syria. Um, so, why am I talking about this? I don't know. Well, the Turkish gains towards Aleppo—they're fifteen kilometers now from the city. Right. That's not clear I, how where they're going to stop. I think there's still good evidence that the Turks and the Russians have made a deal behind closed doors mm-hmm. type of thing. 
to to do this that the that the Russians are happy because the Russians aren't saying really anything about it. They're not concerned about it. They're not, and if they were seriously concerned about it, or if they saw Turkey as an enemy, uh, or that what Turkey was doing in Syria was a serious problem, they would they would in some way or other make it clear. But they haven't been doing that. And I don't think the Turks necessarily have any designs on Syria. What Erdogan wants is the territorial integrity of Turkey as it is today being secure. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then I would much prefer uh, that. You'd much prefer that if, were, if the Kurds, the solution to the, his Kurdish problem is that uh, some kind of a Kurdish state would be created in northern Iraq. Mm-hmm. And that would be a serious kind of concession to the Kurds who have been waiting for a state of their own for 80 years. If they could get at least a part, of course, it wouldn't be the entire official Kurdistan, which spans Turkey, Syria, Iraq and Iran. Rebella, nothing, right? And the Americans have already gone a long way to kind of creating that over their 10 or 15 years occupation of Iraq and invasion of Iraq. So that's already on the that's much more a much more viable Kurdish state in northern Iraq than anywhere in northern Syria. In fact, you see the Kurds had to kind of, with the help of the U.S., had to kind of rampage across uh, northern Syria. But they're already well established in northern, northern Iraq. They're not really well established in northern Syria. Is that what's going on then in northern Iraq right now? We've got an operation underway in Mosul, yeah, and Kirkuk, two cities in Iraqi Kurdistan, in quotes, yeah. This is, there are what, 5,000 U.S. troops involved? Kurdish forces. Hold on, hanging back. Iraqi forces. They've surrounded Mosul and they're taking the city by storm. Yeah. Uh, It's good, good, it's good uh, foreign policy, a good foreign policy success for Hillary. Just, we can, we can assume, watch it happen, that Mosul gets liberated within the next two weeks, mm-hmm. I right before the presidential election, and watch how Hillary talks about it a lot and how Hillary is given a lot of credit for that, an Obama success story, i.e. a Democratic success story, i.e. a Hillary success story. It's just going to be a pathetic attempt to, to get some, get some uh, votes uh, for her presidential campaign. I mean, the, the Mosul is, could have been... I mean, the whole history of ISIS... And these jihadis in Iraq and Syria over the past four or five years has been one of American intransigence in the face of it. They've done nothing. Because the whole point was these jihadis were meant to overthrow the Syrian government. Of course, they're not going to go and kick them out of cities or liberate cities or bomb them. They haven't been doing any of that for the past four or five years. The only person, the only ones who have done that have been the Russians in the past year since they intervened. Before that, nothing happened. And since then, basically nothing has happened. But because of Russian success in kicking jihadis, American jihadi, jihadi ass in, in Syria, the Americans felt we got to salvage something out of this and we can get something for, for Hillary for the presidential campaign. So let's go ahead and do Mosul. And we could do Mosul easy peasy, no problem. We can even we can even send a memo, send text messages to jihadis to say, hey guys, we want you to move out this corridor. Leave on this night. Okay, well, got, gotcha boss, no problem. Yeah. We're done, fact, we'll go to Syria. Okay, so, so now we've liberated Mosul. Very good. It's so farcical. The whole thing's ridiculous. It, but people even analyze this bullshit. It's ridiculous. It is. It, and, and it's so Russians transparent. Warned. Go ahead, Neil. The Russians expressly warned about that scenario, saying that it looks to us like, yeah, they've surrounded Mosul, except for this one part, which veers to the west, <laughs> towards the Syrian border. <laughs> So they apparently have got a two-for-one here where they're going to have a glorious victory in Mosul by letting ISIS escape out across into the desert and over the border into Syria. Mm-hmm. And Trump called that one in the first debate. I was just going to say that. 
and and he did it he in did? the third. Okay. Yeah, I mean that that's how transparent this whole this whole thing is. Uh, it, it's such a dress-up show. It, it's so obviously political that uh, that Trump said, and they're doing this for your campaign, Hillary. I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, he said, "Oh, in, right, okay." Well, in the first debate, he said. Uh, why you guys? Why are you guys talking about an operation on Mosul? It's like whatever happened to the element of surprise? You say it out. You say it like this, and you talk about it, and everyone knows about it. And obviously, these ISIS leaders are going to find out, and they're going to leave the city, which they did. Which they did. Which they did eventually. And which then he brought it up against. He brought it up against in the third debate. Up again in the third debate, and also um, about this. So you look at. The, the narratives that, that uh, are going around from the military and in the news from the, the beginning of this operation, the first uh, like American um, statements are like, oh, this is going to be a long battle. It's going to be hard. You know, it's, it's, we're probably going to have some setbacks. It might take a long time. And then you've got um, like the people on the ground, like the Peshmerga and other fighters on the ground saying, oh, this is going to be a, a, you know, a walk in the park. And then you have the Iraqi government saying, oh, we're, we're making surprisingly good pro uh, progress in these first few days. It's like, uh, wow, we didn't expect things to be so easy. And then you look at the number of fighters that they, that they estimate are in there. If you look at the, for the past year and a half, um, the, the estimates have been consistently like 10 to 12,000 uh, ISIS fighters in the city. And then um, right at the beginning of the, of the, uh, of the operation, that estimate got downgraded to about 3,500, 3,500 to 4,500. Um, <laughs> and this come, and that came right. just, you know, two, de two days after the, the Russian report of, uh, uh, you know, sources saying that there was this deal with Saudi Arabia and the U.S. to let 9,000 ISIS fighters out of the city and into Syria. And the, the estimate just happens to be around that uh, around that number less than they were estimating just like the, the weeks before. So it's just, mm. it's totally transparent. I mean, so a lot of these, so the majority of the fighters in the city leave the, and, the and the, the Iraqis and the, the Kurds and the Shia militias just, you know, come in and it's going to be like, uh, you know, like Turkey and Jeropolis. Oh, well, where is everyone? You know, there's going to be a, a token force to fight against, but they're already all right, you know, in Syria. And who, who said a few years ago, to uh, to Putin, who when he was trying to make a deal, an oil deal with him, threatened him with the use of jihadis against. Um, that was Bandar Bush. Bush. Yeah, Bandar Prin Bush, right? Prince, Prince Bandar of Saudi Arabia. Uh, right. So he and, he and he he talks to Putin and he's trying to get him to make a deal with Saudi Arabia on keeping the price of oil at a certain. As long as Putin, at, even at that time, and this was before the Russian intervention. And Syria is saying, listen, you need to get on board with our plan for Syria, i.e. Assad is going to go, Assad has to go. And he said to him, don't worry about those jihadis in Syria. We're just using them in the face of the Syrian government, but they won't have any control after, after in a new Syria. So uh, who controls the jihadis who are in Mosul? Saudi Arabia, obviously, by, that, by, by the record of that interview. And who has been getting lots of campaign money and donations from Saudi Arabia, Hillary Clinton, and who's running for president now and is going to get a boost from the liberation of Mosul from the Saudi Saudi terrorists, Clinton. It's not very complicated. Like, I mean, it's just the whole thing is, give me a freaking break, you know.
Um, Don't try and pass this bullshit off on me, people. At least Sweden was honest this week. The Swedish government announced their very clear policy of how to deal with the humanitarian situation in Aleppo. They've in they've welcomed. They're going to welcome back all of their rebels, Swedish nationals from Syria. <laughs> When they come home, they'll be given a free driver's license, uh, free housing, and tax breaks, and uh, jobs, possibly. So, yeah, that's Sweden's contribution to the war on terror. Thank you, Sweden. Round of applause. Um, and meanwhile, this week, there's... Uh, I mean, I can't take it anymore, you know, apart from all the bullshit I have to deal with in the world and actually address it. I understand now why I'd, I, I wish they would all just face up and just be honest about stuff, you know, because it's, it's the process of having to just point the obvious lies, you know, uh, that gets tiring. Um, we had, uh, and the media obviously obviously is instrumental in, in propagating those lies. And this this week, um, the uh, Russia's uh, aircraft carrier battle group uh, left uh, northern Russia to go to the Mediterranean. Mediterranean. This was announced well in advance, and they're steaming down uh, through the uh, English, through the North Sea, and then down past England, and through the Channel on their way down the coast of uh, western coast of Europe into the Mediterranean. And the Western, the British press in particular, have been losing their marbles, deliberately losing their marbles over this event, uh, calling it, you know. Um, Putin's warships invade invade British waters. Putin's on his way. Putin's nukes uh, aggressively floating past Brit Blighty, uh, batting down the hatches. Here comes Putin and his evil warship heading straight for England. And I mean, they're writing headlines like that with that level of, of hysteria when they know very well. And it's been announced several months, I think, in advance that this was going to happen, and that when when Russian uh, uh, navy navy ships have to leave the northern port, that's the way they go when they go to the Mediterranean. They're not coming to the UK, but the but the British press was all over it, every single one of them, in in these hysterical terms, as if they were. If you read the titles, you would think that these ships are coming to invade the UK. Now. This week, the, the British conservative uh, weekly magazine called The Spectator, and you look up the, the, the headline, look up spectator.co.uk or whatever it is, and you can see their, their, their latest um, front page image of, uh, of Putin. It's, and there's two stories in it, and the title on the front uh, with Putin and a caricature of Putin and uh, dressed in a red robe and holding like an iPad or a tablet with RT on the tablet, mm -hmm. he's holding it forward and it says, it's called Putin versus the world. He's winning in propaganda and on the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, now, RT talked to these people and said, what's wrong with you? Are you demented? What's wrong with you? you know, um, so the editor, a guy called Freddie Gray, our deputy editor, Freddie Gray, of this spectator, told RT, Straight out, he said the madness around this these ships coming past. He said these help sell sell copies of our of our magazine, and the same is true for all of British newspapers. They're doing it deliberately just to sell copies of their newspapers and magazines. 
He says that the hysteria can be explained by some deep psychic need for an enemy, which Putin is fulfilling very neatly for us at the moment, which is kind of uh, quite quite perceptive in a certain sense. Well, it's honest, honest. It's got a deep psychic need for an enemy, which is, you know, but anyone will do it, I think. And if you can't find one, make one up. That's the idea, basically. It's a, yeah. But anyway, uh, he says that this editor expressed the belief that the more people they, that can say how hysterical we're being in the West about Russia, the better. And he says, and that is what we're trying to do this week in The Spectator. Um, so... Is it going to backfire, you think, in the grand scheme of things? Yeah, it is. I think it's it's a little bit disingenuous what he said that because it he makes it seem like well it's just the, the flavor of the month you know it just happens to be now there is a, a long tradition of British um, anti-Russian hysteria and really when you look at it over the last two hundred years it only waxes and wanes in its intensity it's always been there. Um, I mean, they they have whole academic departments in their universities set up to studying the Russification processes, which is a specific, unique term to how Russia takes over and corrupts the world, basically. So um, it, the predecessors of Spectator a century or more ago were doing the exact same thing. And they probably would have talked about it in the same terms. Well, you know, we just need an enemy. There's something a little bit more existential, I think, than that for the Brits. Um, yeah. If you think about it, they're at the western extreme of Europe, Russia's at the eastern extreme. There's a kind of a, a rivalry there, and never the two shall meet, you know? Well, the, the ordinary, I don't know if the ordinary British people have a deep psychic need for an enemy. No, the elites do. The elites have a deep psychic need for an enemy, but only to justify their deep psychic need for aggression and destruction and domination of other people. And to maintain the kind of regime Britain is. I don't think it's a deep psychic need. It's, it's, it's a fairly, fairly kind of superficial, but conscious and deliberate strategy to create an enemy mm. in order to justify your warmongering policies. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting yeah, what's about... it ridiculous, you know. You know, when, when we had the closing of the uh, NatWest RT banking uh, account um, of a week and a half ago or so, uh, there was a huge outpouring on the part of, uh, it, it seemed, uh, by a number of uh, British citizens and, uh, and others who came out and said, this is the most obvious, uh, the most kind of um, politically uh, motivated and propagandistic moves we've seen yet. And uh, the British government, I think Theresa May, made a statement uh, trying to distance herself um, from the NatWest uh, announcement that they would no longer be um, handling RT's banking uh, by saying it wasn't the government decision. Uh, But George Galloway, Oliver Stone, uh, so many others came out and said so. I think a few people uh, mentioned that they would be closing their accounts. And then a few days later... And I don't know where we are with this story right now, but it seems as though uh, Nat West sort of went back a little bit, backtracked, and, and said, "Well, maybe we'll maybe we'll discuss or renegotiate it." Um, but uh, but yeah, what we're seeing right now is a full-on uh, hot propaganda war, uh, like we haven't seen in a very long time. 
And um, I, I think people are it, – it's, it's funny that the, the more that these things occur, the more obvious they are, uh, the, the more clear it becomes to more people about exactly what's occurring. Well, we were going to we were going uh, to talk about. Do you have one thing to say on that, Neil? Before we wrap up. Yes. All right. Yes. Two weeks ago, creepy veep Joe Biden <laughs> announced that the U.S. government had declared cyber war on Russia. Um, last week, there were major power outages, or power. The net went down across many domains in the U.S. Uh, I don't know if you guys were directly affected or if you noticed, but yeah. supposedly it was a big deal. And they said there were massive DOS attacks against uh, websites and domains. Uh, now, this week, in an interview with Anon Intel Group, whoever they are, a representative of New World Hackers claimed the attack and claimed that they were behind it. And that it was, quote, an annual power test. And, quote, this is actually against Russia. Testing power is key. That way we see how much bandwidth each attack outputs. The report goes on. They claim that Friday's attack was something of a warning shot to Russian hackers, saying, quote, Russia is pretty much saying that they are better than the U.S. by hacking into everything, i.e., the Clinton emails, which wasn't Russia, but anyway, Russia is attempting to start a war. We will show them a war. So it was either some kind of, yeah, like you said, it was to test what they can do, take the internet down across much of the U.S. in one day, and or it was to justify, uh, provide just cause for retaliating against Russia for doing this to us. We're going to see a lot more of that, I suspect, in the coming weeks and months. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just today, actually, the Russian foreign minister said their website's been hacked, so that's yeah. probably related. Yeah, saw that. Well, we we were going to talk about one more story, uh, Duterte in the Philippines and his uh, his trip to China, but it looks like we don't have time for that. So just check out, uh, if you haven't already, our listeners, check out Shane Lachance's article. Uh, it's a sought focus on the main page, Twilight of the U.S. Empire Gives Way to Philippine Rebirth. So if you want the lowdown of what's, on what's been going on uh, with Duterte and his separation, the Philippines' separation from the United States, check that out because it's uh, very interesting news. And Yeah, I think... Uh, the short version is Duterte is awesome, but if he's not <laughs> careful with what he says, yeah, it'll be over before he gets it up and running. So, Yeah, he, he really is on the level of a Chavez in, in terms of uh, calling the U.S. out for all of its uh, garbage. But, um, yeah, on that note, uh, we'd like to thank you for listening today. Thanks for our callers, Stephen and Ryan. Uh, Thank you, listeners and chatters. Uh, We hope you enjoyed the show, and we look forward to seeing you again next Sunday for another edition of either Behind the Headlines or The Truth Perspective. And don't forget to check out the Health and Wellness Show on Fridays. And until then... Take care, everyone. See you, everyone. See you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening.